Well, we have sang to him, and we have prayed to him, and we have sang about him, and now is the time that we are going to hear from him. If you would, take your Bibles and stand with me as we hear God speak to us through his word. We stand uh, not because this is an old book and we reverence it, but because it's a living word from the living God. And we stand in preparation as servants ready to hear and obey what he is to say. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, 4 through 17. Chapter 2, 4 through 17. And if you need a pew Bible, we're still on page 1. It is kind of funny, isn't it? Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow, that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to the water to water the garden and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which encompasses the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and the onyx stone are there. The name of the river is Gihon. It is the one which encompasses the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hedekel. It is, one, is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's pray. Father, we again are marveling and, and excited to think again about the creation of all things and how you are the creator of all things, how we are accountable to you, responsible to you, that everything on this planet and in this universe you own, and yet you're a gracious master and owner. And Lord, you have provided a place on this universe, on this planet, wherein we can enjoy and relate to you but there's boundaries with this blessing. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts would be sensitive to hear the blessings that we can enjoy and to be obedient to live within the boundaries that you have set. We pray, Lord, that your word as is preached, your spirit would open hearts, those that are skeptical or unbelieving or unsure or deeply hurting and just questioning why you have allowed something to occur or an individual to depart or someone to enter into our lives and it's caused pain and hurt and suffering. We pray, Lord, that your powerful word would speak into that hurt, speak into that heart, and reveal yourself in a mighty way. This is our expectation and our desire. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, we are moving along in our series through the book of Genesis. And we are focusing specifically on chapters 1 through 11. And next Sunday, we, God willing, will be on page 2 in your pew Bibles. 
And uh, as we begin here in chapter 2, we have spent several weeks in chapter 1, a critical chapter, and yet, as we come upon chapters 2 and 3, we are going to find that they are of extreme importance as well. And so I, I hope that you will ask God to give you an open mind and open heart as we kind of delve into these two chapters here that we will spend really, really through the month of June. And uh, in fact, as this series will carry us through the summer months and even into the beginning of September as we go through Genesis 1 through 11. And so this morning as we continue on, here we just got through with creation in chapter 1. And one of the great mysteries of creation is the location of the Garden of Eden, which most people, whether they're church or unchurched, are familiar with that term in, in the Garden of Eden. And although it's described in some detail here in Genesis chapter 2, the actual location, well, let's just say it's caused a lot of speculation. Where is the Garden of Eden? Over the years, many have claimed the Garden of Eden has been found. Of course, the location of each supposed discovery is in a different location. For example, when Christopher Columbus discovered the Orinoco River in South America, he concluded that his waters came down from the Garden of Eden. Of course, he also thought he was on the east coast of Asia. One of the more exotic assertions came from the British general Charles Gordon, who believed the Garden of Eden was located on an island in the Indian Ocean called Praslin Island. And believe it or not, another place believed by some to be the location of the Garden of Eden is right here close to home. Apparently, Joseph Smith believed the Garden of Eden was originally located near the city of Independence, Missouri. Author W.F. Warden outdid everyone, though, by locating the Garden of Eden at the North Pole. I think he was getting confused with Santa Claus or something. I don't know. Our curiosity, where, where naturally we wonder, where is the Garden of Eden? Where did God plant this garden? But what we are going to focus on is not so much the location and where God planted it, but why did God plant the Garden of Eden? And what we discover here in chapter 2 is that the Garden of Eden was planted by God, believe it or not, for mankind. The Garden of Eden was a place where the first man experienced life with God under the very rule of God. God created man to live in relationship with God and to reflect his glory. He's made in his image. And we see in the Garden of Eden a glimpse Moses is giving us a picture here, a glimpse of the special relationship that man, Adam and Eve, had with God in the Garden of Eden that includes the blessings of God as well as the boundaries set by God. God forms man uniquely. God speaks to the man. God makes a covenant with the man. And God creates the man to have life with God under the rule of God. And it's within this context now of the Garden of Eden that we discover this universal truth for all of mankind. You say, what is it? Well, notice in your notes, I invite you to pull out that insert in your bulletin and take notes if you want or just follow along with me on the screen behind me. But notice this. Here's the, the big idea of what we're going to see this morning. Here's the universal truth that applies to my life and your life. Whether you are a middle schooler, high schooler, whether you're middle age or even a senior adult, this truth applies to all of us here. Notice what it is. The blessings of life with God are only enjoyed within the boundaries set by God. The Garden of Eden speaks to us about the goodness of God. We're going to see God's goodness and God's generosity in the garden here. And it points to all he has done for us in his grace. We can never, never complain that God has not done enough for us. The Garden of Eden points to us. It points us to the blessings of life with God, not just for the first man, but also for all humanity. Think about this with me. There are a lot of people in the world today 
who have a very incorrect view of God. A very twisted view of God. They think God is this great cosmic killjoy looking for every opportunity to kind of just squeeze the joy out of their lives. And this false view of God was started by Satan himself, and it is still prevalent today. It paints God as some sort of Grinch who wants to withhold from your life anything that is delightful and enjoyable. And what the Garden of Eden shows us is the exact opposite of that. The opposite of this view that says God is the great cosmic killjoy is what is taught in the scriptures, and David even says, he picks up on this, and he says in Psalm 16, 11, you, God, reveal the path of life to me. In your presence, God, is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. And that is what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. The world, on the other hand, our culture declares to us that we can be successful without God. But Genesis shows us that without God, life isn't even worth living. The Garden of Eden shows us that we were created for life with God under the rule of God. And without him, we will not, we cannot find happiness, fulfillment, and peace in this life. Why? Because the blessings of life with God are only enjoyed within the boundaries that are set by God. So are you ready to see this? Are you ready to see what life with God under the rule of God looks like? Let's journey to the Garden of Eden. Let's discover the blessings and the boundaries of life with God. Notice number one, we were created. We, we were created to enjoy the blessings of life with God. We see this in the beginning here of chapter 2, specifically in verse 4, notice how it begins. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And this word history is sometimes translated in your Bibles as account or generations. This phrase that we're seeing here, this is the history of, or this is the account of, this is the generations of. In fact, it occurs ten different times in the book of Genesis, and every time it's introduced, or you see it, it's introducing us to a new section in the epic story of beginnings. And so the whole focus now of this particular section is on the creation of the very first man, who we know as Adam, that's his name, and his home in the Garden of Eden. Now, this raises a question. What is the relationship then between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2? What's the relationship between 1 and 2? Because it appears at first glance that we might have two different creation accounts. Some liberal scholars who are educated way beyond their intelligence will tell you that Genesis 1 is in conflict with Genesis chapter 2. But the creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2 don't contradict each other. Rather, they complement each other. Sure, there are some differences, but not disagreements. The differences have to do with the perspective in which the author is telling us the story and even the purpose for why he's telling us the story. And so think of it this way. Genesis 1 gives us this panoramic view of the creation of the whole heavens and the earth, whereas Genesis 2 now zooms in from the big picture and zooms into the creation of Adam and Eve specifically. And so Genesis 1 is the big picture of the creation story with the summary of each of the six days. But in Genesis 2, we move from the big picture and zoom into the details of the creation of Adam and Eve on day six. So with this in mind, let's focus on the creation of the first man. Notice what it says. Moses writes here in verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And then he, he gives us this nuance here. And to be quite honest with you, what Moses writes in verses uh, 5 and 6 here are, are somewhat difficult to interpret. 
but we have clues, we have insight here. Notice what he says. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now Moses seems to be describing the untended creation of the earth before man was created. Some Bible scholars think Moses was even drawing a comparison here between life before and life after the fall when the ground was cursed as a result of Adam's sin. One commentator writes, and I quote, the plant of the field and the herb of the field are not a reference to the vegetation of chapter 1, but rather anticipate the thorns and the thistles that were to come as a result of the curse. And so Moses then indicates in these verses that there were two things lacking at this point in the creation account from the perspective of Genesis 2 here. And that is a water source was lacking to nourish the plants and a man was lacking to cultivate the ground. And lo and behold, what does God do? Oh, he takes care of both these things. Why? He's God. In verse 6, God provides the water source. And at that time, it was a mist or some type of subterranean springs that rose up and watered the ground. And then in verse 7, God provides the man to cultivate the ground. Now, how God created man is simply incredible. I mean, it is, it's awe-inspiring. Notice what it, Moses writes in verse 7. In the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So now we see the creation of the very first man. Notice this in your notes. God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. In simple terms, dirt. He formed Adam from dirt, and he breathed life into him. Now, before we get to the creation of man, there's a subtle shift in reference to God that I don't want you to miss here. In how God is referred to. It's no longer just God in the Hebrew name being Elohim. Remember, we saw this in, in Genesis chapter 1. God is, the Hebrew name is Elohim, which is a, a name that means the powerful God of creation. But now, for the first time, we see that it's Lord God. And we're like, what? What big deal? Oh, this is huge. Because Lord God is actually Yahweh Elohim which is a very personal name of God. Now, why is this a big deal? Because this is an intimate account of the Lord God who is tenderly fashioning the first man, just as a potter takes a piece of clay and carefully shapes his design. In other words, what you see here is man is no afterthought, but rather the intentional, personal design of the Lord God. And Moses then kind of makes a point with a pun, because the Hebrew word for man is Adam. That's where we get his name, Adam, which sounds very similar to the word for ground. And Matthew Henry writes this. He was not, speaking of Adam, he was not made of gold dust, powder of pearl, or diamond dust, just the dust of the ground. What that means is we are made in the image of God. We saw that last few Sundays. That is true. We are made in the very image of God, which makes you unique, which makes us distinctive from the animal creation. And yet, we are also made from the dust of the ground. And because of sin, as we will see in chapter 3, our bodies will one day return to the dust of the ground. You're familiar with the phrase, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Psalms 103 verse 4 says that God knows how we are formed, that God remembers that we are dust. Now, in our egocentric culture, this should humble us. We have no reason to glory in ourselves. John Calvin once remarked, he must be excessively stupid who does not here learn humility when he learns that he is made from the dust of the ground. And I love how J. Vernon McGee put it. He says, we're made of dust, and dust that gets stuck on itself is called mud. So here is Adam, the very first dirt man, clod man, if you want to call him that. 
And Adam can't stand, he can't move, he can't walk or talk or sing. In fact, Adam at this point can't do anything because he's not alive yet. That is until God stoops down and tenderly breathes into his nostrils the, quote, breath of life. Notice that God doesn't speak Adam into existence. That is far different than what we see when God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, is it not? We saw that God was so powerful, he spoke the universe into existence. The spoken word is powerful, and yet God does not do that with man. God tenderly stoops down, and he doesn't just blow at Adam from across the heavens. The picture is God coming down and forming Adam with his hands and then giving him this kiss of life. And as one commentator explains, breathed here is warmly personal with face-to-face intimacy of a kiss. Here's the point. Here's the point. Adam gets his body from the earth, the dust of the ground, but he gets his life from who? God himself. And so let us never forget this truth, that life comes from God, and therefore we owe our total dependence on God. In fact, you jump over to the New Testament, and there's the Apostle Paul, and he's on Mars Hill. He's talking to the Athenians there in Acts chapter 17, verse 25, and he tells them this, that God gives to everyone life and breath and everything. Now, if God should remove his sustaining hand from you, do you realize you would cease to exist and your body would quickly return to the dust of the ground? No wonder then, We are only going to flourish in a relationship with God. Moses, listen, he's doing something for us here. Moses is showing us that we were not designed to make it on our own. We were designed from the very beginning, and it hasn't changed We were designed for life with God under the rule of God. Now, when you have life with God under the rule of God, there are blessings with God. Blessings pour out of him onto us. And specifically here, I want to show you three of these blessings that are emphasized by Moses. The first blessing is this. Adam's life with God was one of provision from God. And this brings us to the Garden of Eden that God planted for Adam. Look how Moses describes this garden again in verses 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four Riverheads. Now, let me just say, especially for you middle and high schoolers, and as you venture into college, especially if you go to a secular college, you will have professors and other people say that the Garden of Eden is just mythical. But the Garden of Eden was a real place eastward in Eden. And let me tell you, it was paradise. Paradise. In fact, the very Hebrew word for Eden is delight or pleasure. In other words, the garden in Eden was truly a beautiful place, and it was filled with trees. And Moses tells us specifically that these trees that littered the Garden of Eden were pleasant to the sight and were good for food. And then Moses also tells us that a mighty river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and then it divided into four smaller rivers, two which are unknown and two that still exist today. That's not all. In the middle of the garden were two special trees. Most people are familiar with at least one of these trees. You have the tree of life, and then the more familiar tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And through these two trees, the destiny of humanity would be decided. 
Now, just imagine with me, life in the Garden of Eden with God. Life with God in the Garden. Let me tell you, Adam had no reason to complain against God. None. Adam had everything he needed in the Garden of Eden. Everything. And soon he will have a wife who's perfectly suited to him. The first blessing that we see in the garden is the blessing of provision from God the Creator. A second blessing we see, Adam's life with God was one of purpose for God. So you have provision, and now we have purpose. Now, a lot of us think paradise is a place where you lie in a hammock under a palm tree on a beach. I happen to think a moment of paradise is just that. We're going to Florida this summer for vacation. I can't wait to get to the beach, put my beach towel down, and relax a little bit. But Adam's life was much more than just relaxing in paradise. In fact, Adam's life with God was one of purpose for God. God gave Adam a task to do. You say, well, what was Adam's task? What was his job? Moses tells us in verse 15, look at it. He says, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Now, this sheds a very different light on what most people think about work. I imagine if we took a poll here, a survey, most of you would think, my, you know, work sucks. That's, that's most people's attitude towards work. Work stinks, I hate my job, I hate, going to, I hate doing any work stinks. And that's how most people view work. But this, this right here immediately shows us that work is a blessing from God, not a punishment for sin. Work is a part of God's plan for all of humanity. And so we see right here that God ordained work before sin ever entered into the picture. And so work is not part of the curse that we find in Genesis chapter 3. Now, don't mistake this. The sweat and the toil, the tears and the trials, the struggles that we feel when we work today, oh yeah, that's part of the curse. And we'll look at that in time. So even, for now, what I want you to see is even in paradise, Adam was given a job to do. God placed Adam. He put Adam in the garden to do two things, to tend it and to keep it. Tend it and keep it. Now, don't, you know, go to your backyard, to your shed, and grab a shovel and hoe right away. Because these words, tend and keep, are two words that are used to describe the work of the priest in the tabernacle and later in the temple when it was built. And so this first word, tend, it actually means to minister or to serve. And so immediately we get this idea that Adam's purpose in the garden that God put him in was to minister and serve in the garden. And then this word keep, it's a fascinating word because it means to guard, to guard. And we get a, a, a taste, we get a flavor of what this word looks like in action. You jump over to Numbers 3, verses 7 and 8, and there the priest's job is actually described. And listen to the words. They, speaking of the priest, they shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. Now, here's the point. Don't miss it here. Adam, get this, he has a priestly function in the garden. He was put there by God to serve in the garden and to guard the garden to serve in the garden, and to guard the garden. You're like, guard against what? Well, first of all, how about guarding against Satan's encroachment in the garden? Because as priest and guardian of the garden, Adam should have driven out the serpent, and instead the serpent drives him and Eve out of the garden. Now, there is so much here that applies to our lives, which we don't have time to unpack. But let me just say to us men here in particular, 
our purpose, just as Adam's purpose in life, is to function as priests in our homes and guardians of our homes. We are to serve as the spiritual leaders and protectors of our wives and children. We bring glory to God by leading and guarding our families. And again, there's so much we could say at this point, but we don't have time, so let's move on. Third blessing. Adam's life with God was one of proximity to God or relationship to God. You could write proximity or relationship. You see, the Garden of Eden was where heaven and earth converged. The garden became the dwelling place of God, where Adam enjoyed all the blessings of life with God. And we know from chapter 3 that the garden, this is where God would meet and talk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. In fact, later in Genesis, what's interesting is the Garden of Eden is actually called the Garden of the Lord. So it is God's garden, not Adam's. God was uniquely present in the garden. And for this reason, the Garden of Eden becomes this sort of temple garden, if you will, where Adam serves God and worships God, which is represented later in the tabernacle and the temple. In fact, many of the features of the Garden of Eden which we don't have time to get into, such as the tree of life, the gold and the precious stones, the cherubim on guard, and even the smells in the garden. Do you realize all those are found in the design and operation of the tabernacle and temple, the place of meeting between God and his people. And so here was Adam, if you can picture this, in the garden, in the presence of God, in relationship with God, and Moses is telling us something here by this. And here's what he's saying. He's telling us that life with God is a great place to be. Life with God is the best place to be. It's where we enjoy the blessings of God. And so life with God is where we want to live. Now this is enormously important. Because there is a monster lie floating around here that we are tempted to buy into. And we will encounter that lie in chapter 3, and it basically says this. Life with God, under the rule of God, well, that's misery. But life apart from God, life without God, under your own rule, doing your own thing, well, that's where happiness is found. That's the lie that Satan started in chapter 3, and that is the lie that has been prevalent ever since the history of mankind. It is the lie most people buy into. And I venture to say it's the lie that we here struggle with the most. That life with God under his rule is a place of misery, and life without God, under my own rule, well, that's the place of happiness. In 2008, an atheist group organized a, pro, a poster campaign on the buses in London, England, and here was their slogan. There is probably no God, so go and enjoy yourself. The assumption was that if God is somehow out there, well, he's just a killjoy. So forget God and enjoy life apart from God. But Moses is telling us, don't fall for this lie. Don't buy into it. God is good. And we have seen that repeatedly. Moses has tried for one whole chapter now to emphasize over and over and over again that God is a good God. God is a generous God. And he's doing it again here. And Moses is telling us, you were created to enjoy the blessings of life with God but under the rule of God. And so Moses is showing us that these blessings of God are only enjoyed within the boundaries of God, which brings us to our second truth we discover in the Garden of Eden. And that is, we were created to live within the boundaries that are set by God. 
How many people do you think fall and die in the Grand Canyon each year? How many have been to the Grand Canyon and you're still alive? You're blessed. God was good to you. On average, get this, on average, three people per year die from falling over the canyon rim. According to the Arizona Daily Sun in 2015, of the 55 who have accidentally fallen from the rim of the canyon, 39 were male. That ought to tell us something. Eight of those guys were hopping from one rock to another or posing for pictures, including a 38-year-old father from Texas pretending to fall to scare his daughter, who then really did fall 400 feet to his death. Planning on exploring the canyon rim? Then make sure you stick to the paved path. In other words, within the boundaries that are marked by the park rangers. Remember, this isn't Disneyland. Grand Canyon Rangers will say, if they see you reaching out over the edge to snap that selfie or perfect photograph, it might sound like a joke at first, but the words of advice are dead on. Many falling deaths have occurred when visitors decided to leave paved paths and get a better vantage point. In other words, these people didn't stay within the boundaries set by the park rangers, which is for our good. You know what? Moses is telling us the same thing. He's showing us the same thing here. At this point, God himself sets the boundaries, which involve basically two options and only two options. You can choose God's way or you can choose your own way. But take heed because God's way leads to life and your way always leads to destruction and death. And as you might guess, the boundaries set by God centered around trees in the garden. Verse 16 and 17, look what it says. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now the boundaries here that are set by God assume Adam's freedom to choose and thus his moral capacity to choose God's way or his own way. Notice the boundaries. The boundaries set by God are clear and they are concise. Of every tree of the garden, you may do what? What is it? Freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Now, it's important to note here that there is a very good in a very positive aspect to the boundaries set by God. Would you not agree with that? God gave Adam the enjoyment or the blessing of eating from all the luscious trees in the garden. God said, go for it, Adam. Enjoy my garden that I planted for you. In fact, eat from any of the trees and eat as much as you like, whenever you like. It's all yours. And to that we would have to say our God is good and our God is gracious. There's no de denying that. Adam, and eat could, Adam could eat from every tree, including the tree of life. Man, that's abundant goodness. Everything in the garden there was for Adam to enjoy except for one tree. God says the same thing today. God says this to all of us. He says, listen, you are free to do anything but sin. Again, God is a good God. God is a generous God. And the boundary puts just one tree off limits. Unfortunately, this one tree becomes the greatest temptation for Adam and Eve. We, like them, naturally desire and gravitate to that which God forbids. We don't seem to realize that what God forbids is for our good and that God alone knows what is good and not good. What's interesting here is that the tree of life is actually mentioned first. Did you catch that? 
the tree of life is mentioned first. But what do Adam and Eve focus on? Which tree? The one that's forbidden. And you say, why is that? Well, because as one commentator says, our primary quest in life is power and not life. The boundaries set by God reveal something to us. They reveal this, that God alone knows what is good and not good for mankind. James Boyce says, the presence of this tree would have reminded Adam that he was not his own God and that he was responsible at all times to his maker. And so banning this one tree made Adam and Eve morally accountable to God Immoral responsibility undergirds all of life. Immoral responsibility always has consequences when violated, which brings us to this question here. What were the consequences for violating the, God's boundaries? Well, it's very simple. God said, you shall surely what? Die. God warned that to rebel against him would surely bring death. And let me tell you, God was not bluffing. God did not count to three. God said, you will surely die to those who ate from the forbidden tree. And sure enough, just like God said, when Adam and Eve sinned, the result was death. Immediate spiritual death, which in the Bible, death is almost always in reference to separation from God. And that's what took place in chapter 3. Adam and Eve were immediately separated from God. They lost their fellowship with God and, get this, they forfeited something in the process. They forfeited their blessings of life with God in the garden because they didn't follow the boundaries. Also in the process, physical death was set in motion. If Adam had eaten of the tree in life, apparently he would have lived forever, passing into heaven without death perhaps like Enoch did. But God removed that choice by removing Adam from the garden and sealing its entrance. And ever since Adam and Eve's faithful choice, death, both spiritual and physical, has dominated the human race. And now people are bound by sin and unable to enjoy the blessings of life with God apart from the grace of God. So what was the reason for the boundaries? Why did God set these boundaries in the garden? Well, notice, here's the reason. One of the ways that we worship God is by obeying his commands. Listen to me, this is critical. The reason obedience is worship is because in our act of obedience, we are proclaiming something. We are proclaiming the supremacy of God when we listen to him and heed his voice and not others. And when we submit to his rule. When Adam and Eve obeyed the voice of Satan instead of the very word of God, they were making a value statement with their actions. They were saying, not verbally, but by actions, they were saying Satan's word is better than God's word. Satan knows best. Satan speaks a better word, so follow after Satan. And every sin of mine, every sin of yours says the same thing. Every sin we commit says God is a fool and I know best. I'm my own God. I will set the boundaries and I will live any way I want. But every time, get this, every time we listen to God as a good God, as a generous God, as our creator God, we value him supremely. We worship God when we choose to live under his rule and we listen to him instead of ourselves or our friends and even our culture. Now, there's still a question, though, that's kind of hanging out here that some of you may be asking. And here's the question. Why did God ban this particular tree? After all, isn't it a good thing to know good and evil? 
First, it's important to note that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not some type of sinister tree that was in the middle of the garden. Witches did not fly out of that tree. Remember, all of God's creation was pronounced what? Good. And so the name good and evil does not brand the tree as partially evil. This unique tree grants the ability and power to determine what is good and what is evil. Of course, this is God's prerogative alone. Let me tell you something. God has never delegated moral autonomy to any of his creatures. This was essentially John Calvin's understanding as well. He says that the, quote, tree was prohibited so that man might not trust in his own understanding, cast off the rule of God, and make himself the judge of good and evil. He goes on and he says, therefore, abstinence from the fruit of one tree was a kind of first lesson in obedience that man might know that he had a ruler and lord of his life on whose will he ought to depend and whose command he ought to submit and this truly is the only rule of living well and rationally that men should exercise themselves in obeying god so the temptation to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was basically this to to seek wisdom without reference to the word of God, or with, apart from God. It was an act of moral autonomy, deciding what is right without reference to God's revealed will. In other words, they set themselves up as their own gods. Adam and Eve desired wisdom, but they sought it outside of the word of God and the will of God. They usurp God's role in determining what is right and wrong. And here we get to the very heart of original sin. And that is, it was to sidestep God's work, which we have been doing ever since. In order to become wise. In order to become our own autonomous little gods. But moral autonomy always, get this, always, 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 always brings what? Death. And loss of blessings of life with God. Now, let me wrap this up because I know we're way over time. Here's the lesson from the garden. Here's the lesson from the garden. What we do with God's word is everything. What, listen to me, teens, what you do with the word of God revealed in his word is everything. Adults, what you do with the word of God concerning all areas of life is everything. God says, live in obedience to me and you will be blessed. Ignore me and life won't work right and you will be miserable. That means there is only one way to enjoy the blessings of life with God, and that is to live under the rule of God. Of God. And until we submit to God's rule, we will never enjoy the blessings of life with God. God sets before us a garden, people. And he basically says, enjoy what I have given you, only do not attempt to live without me. You won't make it, you can't, don't think you can survive without me. He offers us blessings, but those blessings of life with God are only enjoyed within the boundaries set by God. Now, if you think the Garden of Eden shows the incredible goodness and generosity of God toward mankind, just look at Jesus in the New Testament. And you will see it with even greater clarity. If you want to understand what we lost, just look to the first Adam when he ate the fruit of the forbidden tree. But don't stop there. Because to regain what Adam lost, look to the second Adam when Jesus came to undo what the first Adam did. Listen, here's the thing. Our sin can be traced back to a tree in the garden. But God used another tree to give us life with him. And to enjoy the blessings that come with that. You say, what tree is that? Notice it. Notice this in your notes. 
Life with God is ruined by our sin, but it is restored by Jesus' death on the cross. As sin enters the world, God sets in motion a plan to send his own son to die in our place for our sin. And we see this even in 1 Peter where he, he calls this tree or the cross the tree that he died on. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5.17. For if by the trespass or the sin of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So do you want to regain what the first Adam lost? Then look to Jesus, for life with God comes through faith in him. Yes, the Garden of Eden was perfect paradise, but it was lost. However, this tree of life, do you realize it is now in heaven? And it is returning again in the new Jerusalem. You go to Revelation 22, you can read all about it. And in the new Jerusalem, we will be more blessed than Adam and Eve ever were in the Garden of Eden. We deserve none of it, though. Why? Because we're sinners. But that's the incredible goodness of God and generosity of God toward us as his creation. And the question simply is this. Will you trust God or will you trust your own self or Satan's lies? Will you live under his rule for your life? Oh, let us worship the God of the garden. And let us remember that the blessings of life with God are only enjoyed within the boundaries set by God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Oh, how we thank you for your goodness and your generosity and most of all your grace in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us to see, open our hearts and minds to see the truth that are revealed to us here in this chapter. Help us to embrace it. And we ask that by it, you, our lives would be changed in you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, next Sunday we will continue. And we will look at the very first wedding day, or marriage, if you will. So I hope you'll come back and join us as we continue in our series here. We're going to prepare for our morning offering. And as they come, praise teams are going to lead us. And then uh, we're going to stand and we're going to sing to the God of the garden. We're going to worship him with one last song. And I pray you will leave here worshiping that God. And you will enjoy the blessings of life with God, but under the rule of God.